Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to learn more about your word. And uh, Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to learn from, um, from Judy, who just, I know, has labored over the text, has studied your word, and is faithful and diligent to provide us encouragement, insight, and, um, and then hopefully to spur us on to greater worship of you. And so, Lord, be with Judy tonight as she teaches us. Allow her words to be clear and compelling, and then allow our hearts to be receptive and, and willing to hear what you have to say through her. So your son's perfect and holy name asks these things. Amen. Judy Wimberly, everybody. Okay. Oh, oh. Goodness. I'm already falling apart. Let me see if I can get this back in here. I think that'll work for the evening. Uh, I assume that you all know not to believe everything that Nika says, so. She does like to tease me. Uh, a little known fact about me that you probably don't know is that when I packed up and headed off to Baylor University at age 17, I entered the School of Music to be a piano major. And it was a very delusional thought. And I very quickly came to the realization that I needed to be rescued from that practice room. Because while I was in there, I had the sense that everybody outside was just thoroughly enjoying their college experience. And I definitely was not being part of that. So I wrote a letter to my parents telling them that at midterm, I would be changing my major. But growing up and always taking piano lessons, my teacher had me learn to play the scales and all the keys, and she multitasked that with a rhythm exercise. So the routine was that you took the scale and you started out and you played quarter notes. So you were one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Then you did it in eighth notes. So you were one and two and three and four and... And then she taught me to play them in triplets. And the way she did that was she said, say the word triplet with a Texas drawl. So you say triplet, and then that way you'll have the right rhythm as you go up the scale. So I started and I would go triplet, 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 triplet. And you know what? I loved playing triplets. It was really fun. I would start down at the bass and go all the way to the treble, much more than the required octaves, because it was just fun to me to say that word as I did it. So in our lesson tonight, we're going to look at some triplet things, and I might title this lesson, The Rescuing Triplets. The book of Exodus itself could be divided into a triplet, into three things. Where we are right now would answer the question, who will rescue Israel and how will it happen? That's chapters 1 through 18, and that's what we're in the midst of right now. Then this next part of Exodus would be, who will reveal to rescued Israel how they then should live as a rescued people? And that would be chapters 19 through 24. And then the third question would be, who will reveal to rescued Israel how they then should worship. And that'll be chapters 25 to 40. So who is the who that would answer all of these questions? In our Bible study for these two semesters, we are going to focus on who is that who, because it is God. And what we're going to see is that God is going to rescue to redeem, that is, he's going to deliver back to himself his own, and he's going to reveal what he is like. And that's our theme triplet for our study. Now, God shows us these three things by telling us a story, a narrative. He brings theology, which is truth about God, down to very clear visuals. And what we have in our lesson tonight are some very clear visuals about God rescuing, redeeming, and revealing. Now, there is someone in this passage who desires to be the central character, and that is Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh was a title, not a given name, and there are probably two different Pharaohs over the span of the book of Exodus. Neither one of them 
remembered Joseph. So evidently, pharaohs were not history buffs at all. Moses never ever mentions the pharaoh's given names. But God was not having Moses record these details of this rescue so that generations down through the centuries would know who was the pharaoh of the Exodus. Rather, God was having Moses record details so that generations down through the centuries would know who was the God of the Exodus because that was what mattered and it mattered importantly for then and for now. Now at this point in the narrative, God is remembering his Genesis promise and his covenant promise. And I want to read just from the um, Jesus Storybook Bible where it references this, where she references it because of the way it describes it. So he's remembering his Genesis promise. And she says, before Adam and Eve left the garden, God whispered a promise to them. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. I will come back to you. And then the other thing God was remembering at this section in Exodus, he was remembering his covenant with Abraham. And here's the way she writes about that. Abraham, God said, believe me. And then God told Abraham his secret rescue plan. Abraham, I'm going to make your family very big, more than all the stars in the sky. You will be my special family, my people, and through you, everyone will be blessed. (gasps) What an incredible promise. God was going to rescue the world through Abraham's family. One of his great, great, great grandchildren would be the child, the promised one, the rescuer. And so right at this juncture in Exodus, that's what God is remembering, his promise in Genesis 3.15 and his promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham. And he's also hearing the cry of his people. And so God is poised to rescue them. So let the contest begin. In chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, we have Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. And essentially, Pharaoh is asking them, what are your credentials? Well, Moses could have given his bio. He could have told about his palace life. Or maybe the two of them could have told about their experience at Mount Hebron. But no, God had told them very specifically what to do when asked about their credentials. Now, Pharaoh's love language is miracles. He loves to see something that he thinks is miraculous. And God is a master communicator, so he's going to reveal their credentials through miracles. Now, Egypt is kind of a Nebraska Nebraska furniture mart when it comes to gods. There's thousands of them. And when a man became Pharaoh, he became a deity, but he was the deity over all these other gods in Egypt. Now, the symbol for the deity of the pharaoh was a snake, specifically a cobra. And so a pharaoh's headdress had this metal cobra that was wrapped around it with its head forked right in the front. And so God is going to start out and give pharaoh a sign, a miracle sign, and it's going to have to do with a snake. And we can see why God would start with this, because he's going to speak directly to pharaoh that it is a lie that he is a God. Now you can tell something about a person by the people he chooses to surround himself with. And so in one corner over here, we have Pharaoh's companions. And those would be magicians, sorcerers, those with knowledge of secret arts. And there's a whole big bunch of them. Because Pharaoh brought in all the heavies because he's expecting a great show of force from them. And in this corner... We have two shepherds. Wow, doesn't look like it's going to be much of a contest. Well, Aaron's staff becomes a snake. But ditto, the magic group over here could do the same. 
But then notice in verse 12, a three-letter word, but, is so important in this. Aaron's staff swallowed up all the, their staff, snakes, and there were a lot of them. And so it was like having a buffet at the Golden Corral for Aaron's staff snake. But what do you see right off the bat about the who, who's the main character in this narrative? What you see from the get-go is God is powerful. He's more powerful than Pharaoh, more powerful than Pharaoh's cohorts, more powerful than the magicians and the sorcerers, and he's more powerful than any satanic influence in Pharaoh's court. Now, God is really answering Pharaoh's question from last week in chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let them go. When I read that, it reminds me of a Dr. Seuss book. Who? I do not know. I will not let them go, is what he's saying. But note Pharaoh's response here to what's just happened. He rejects, he resists, he rebels against God. That's going to be our triplet that we are going to see repeated for Pharaoh all through this. He said he didn't know the Hebrew God, but now he does know something about the Hebrew God. But what is his response? It is a stubborn resolve not to acknowledge God, even though God had revealed his superior power. Now, Pharaoh, you will be able to tell very quickly that he is set on himself and his power, and he's full of pride, and he's full of stubbornness, and that is evil. But God did not put that evil in his heart. But what we're going to see is that God's actions are like twisting Pharaoh's heart to reveal what's there. God's actions are going to force Pharaoh to show the heart of his hand. What is it? And we have an opportunity to watch and observe what occurs here, and we can learn from this example not to do and respond Pharaoh's way. God gave this miraculous sign right here in the beginning as an opportunity to Pharaoh. Pharaoh could have released God's people right now, let them leave, and go worship him. Pharaoh could have done it, and God would have blessed him for doing it. There's actually some examples in Genesis where foreign rulers did something like that, obeyed God, and they were blessed for it. But Pharaoh instead rebels against God's command. Now, God is the rescuer. God is going to rescue his people from the bondage that they are in. And when I studied for this lesson, one thought that just came to me and really just spoke to my heart was that God, the rescuer, never rests. Now, in our family, we had the habit when the kids were growing up that we would take the and capitalize T-H-E, and then we would name something that was true about God, and we'd put it on all caps. And then that would be descriptive about God, and when we would say it as the whatever, we would know we were talking about God. And that's what we're going to do tonight. The rescuer is God. And the rescuer never rests. He rested after six days of creating the whole entire universe, He rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but he had completed what he had set out to do with the work of creation. But then came the fall, and God immediately promised that he would rescue his creation, and he has not rested since. He's been at work, and he is still at work, because those that he created, there's still some that need to be rescued, and his creation still needs to be rescued from the fall. So he'd never rest. And we want to know what God is like as the rescuer because he's the same today and he is still rescuing. So we're going to see God's rescue plan. It's going to be 10 plagues. And when you're reading it, you feel like it was the Monday plague, then the Tuesday plague, and then the Wednesday plague. But that's not how it happened. It was probably spaced over about seven months, maybe began in October when the Nile overflowed, and it ran maybe through April when the time for spring lambs came about. But when you look at the plagues as a composite, you see that the first nine fit into a pattern of three triplets. Plagues one, two, three and then four, five, six, and then seven, eight, nine. Ten is the climax, and so it's different, and it's going to be unique. But there's a pattern 
that can be seen in these three triplets. And so plagues one, four, and seven, or the trip part, will have these three things in common. There'll be something about mourning, something about warning, and, a ha- and then the happening. And so then plagues two, five, and eight, the middle ones in the three triplets, will have only a warning and then the happening. And three, six, and nine, the last in each of the three triplets, will only have the happening. And so that pattern is repeated. And we're going to look at each plague individually, and we're going to use a triplet to be an outline for studying them. That they are miraculous, they are meaningful, and they are merciful. So let's begin with plague one. Exodus 7, 14 through 25. God begins his rescue plan by focusing on water in his creation. The plague was that the water would be turned to blood. But water biblically is considered life-giving. And we were even talking about in our huddle group, even today, water still is a source of life for communities. But blood spilled out biblically is symbolic of death. Now, Egypt is a desert, and there isn't rain, so where do they get their water? They get it from the Nile River. And if you look at a population density map from this period in history, you see all the dots of population are along the Nile River. And out here in the interior, there's very few centers of population. So the Nile was the source of water and life, and the Nile River was worshipped as a god. Osisurus was one of the gods of the Nile that they worshipped, and supposedly the Nile was his bloodstream. And so there were many hymns of worship written for the Nile River. And when I say many, I don't mean like a dozen. I mean like there were scads of them. You can Google that and find them. They would have needed a worship leader and a worship team for all the songs to the Nile. So here's four lines from one of them. Hymn to the Nile. The bringer of food, rich in provisions, creator of all good, Lord of majesty, sweet of fragrance. Now I want you to keep in mind the lyrics of this hymn to the Nile because God is going to contradict it. Now the Nile would swell and overflow and the Egyptians were very resourceful to capture all that water. And notice that God's instructions to Moses to give to Aaron is that he's to hold his staff over the waters in the plural of Egypt. Because what Egypt did is they dug streams away from the Nile to capture water, and then they dug canals to capture water out of the streams, and they dug ponds to capture water out of the canals, and then they devised some sort of reservoir system. And then it even says that in their houses, in the wooden... uh, buckets that they had for water, and the stone jars, that would also be affected. And it's so interesting to see God's detail, because I read in one source that the poor people were the ones who would have had the stone jars, and the wealthy would have had wooden bowls for their water. But it's like God is is not going to be partial here. It's going to cover all the economic spectrum in Egypt. The sovereign God knows how they worship the Nile. Now, the pattern for this triplet is morning, warning, happening. So in the morning, God knew that Pharaoh went out to the Nile because he went out to worship it. He had his quiet time every morning spent worshiping the Nile. And so God told Moses and Aaron, this is where you go and find him. And when we look at this whole narrative in Exodus, we see that water is very significant. What had the previous Pharaoh done about the baby boys? Thrown them into the Nile. And down the road, how will the Egyptians eventually be judged? They will drown in the Red Sea. And so we see this water motif. So we have it happening in the morning. Then we have the warning. God warned, and then it happened just as God said it would. God used the human agents of Moses and Aaron, and specifically Aaron's staff, and the water turned to blood. As a result of that, the fish died, and that was a big food provider for them. And the river smelled. Now, where was their sweet fragrance of their river god? It was a stench. But ditto, the magic guys did the same thing with somehow their secret arts. They could mimic. They could not undo it. They could not stop it. Now, whether they could ditto it 
by sleight of hand or illusion or trick or power of Satan. It doesn't matter. It was counterfeit to God's power. And anyway, in the cases where they mimicked it, it only made it worse for the Egyptians. So you kind of ask, what was the point? Now, this plague lasted seven days, this water to blood. But God's revelation here is he is saying, I am the creator. I created the Nile. It is mine. It is not a God. It obeys me. The rescuer is not resting. But what is the response of Pharaoh? It says in chapter 7, verse 22, that Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He did not listen to Moses and Aaron. He turned his back on them. He turned his back on his people who were suffering, and he went into his palace. The ultimate snub when someone is trying to communicate with you is to just turn, ignore, and go away, escape. And as a parent, if I were talking to a child seriously about something, I wanted eye contact with them, and if they turned their back on me and walked away, I really did see that as a rebellious act. And that's exactly what Pharaoh is doing. Now, this plague was miraculous. It occurred upon Aaron's command with his staff. All the water was changed. God the creator took the order in his creation and turned it into a chaotic state, but then he stopped it. He reversed it. So it was a miraculous thing because he divinely intervened in the natural order. And then this miracle was meaningful. The Egyptians believed their gods controlled all the natural force. But God is revealing that's a wrong conclusion. That is a lie. By intervening in the natural force, he could show that their gods could not prevent it. They could not hamper it. They could not change it. They could not stop it. He was addressing specifically their worship of the Nile. And then this miracle was merciful. The Egyptians didn't die. It was an opportunity for them to find out something about this God of the Hebrews. And they had an opportunity to choose how to respond. Now, the rescuer never rests, but the question becomes, how do we respond to his rescue work? Do we refuse it? Or do we receive it? Pharaoh refused. But the rescuer continues. So plague two, Exodus 8, 1 through 15. I want to point out to you here that a good thing to notice as you're progressing through the narrative is to contrast Pharaoh and Moses. Pharaoh is disobeying God and his heart becomes harder and harder toward responding to God. But nervous, excuse-making Moses is obeying God, and his heart is turning more and more to the Lord. And what you will see continually increasing is strength and courage in Moses. This is a different Moses in this passage this week than we saw in past weeks when he was conversing with God. Now, this is the middle plague in the triplet. So it has a warning and then the happening. So Moses went and he warned Pharaoh, let the people go or God is going to fill your country with frogs. Not a few frogs, but on paralleled numbers of frogs. They'll be in your clothes, in your beds, in your ovens, in your mixing bowls. But Pharaoh didn't take any action. So Aaron stretched out his staff, and there was instant obedience to God's commandment. Frogs came out of the water up on the land. And the magic guys could do that. But once again, what were they accomplishing? It just made it worse for the Egyptians. Now, this was a miracle because God multiplied the frogs. He made a lot more of them than they were. And they were instantly everywhere. It wasn't a gradual thing like they're hopping down the street trying to get to Pharaoh's palace. No, instantly they were there. And never before this and never after this in all the history of the world Has there been such a frog pestilence? The only times frogs are mentioned in the Old Testament is right here in Exodus, two places in Psalms where the psalmist is referring back to the frog incident in Exodus. Now, frogs, it was meaningful because frogs were a god to the Egyptians of fertility. And Hecht, H-E-Q-T, was the goddess, and she was the symbol of fertility. 
And if you look at an image rendering of her, she was dressed like an Egyptian, but she had a frog face. The frog was a number of sacred animals that if you kill them, you could be killed. And even if you involuntarily slaughtered them, it could be punishable by death. Now, frogs are an amphibian reptile that can live in two different environments, can live in water, can live in land. And that was something that just really made the Egyptians revere them. They just were so curious about how they could live in these two environments, so they decided that they must be a god. But God, again, is saying, no, I'm the creator, I made frogs, they can't help you reproduce, they obey me. And once again, in this miracle, it is merciful because God is giving Pharaoh another chance. So how did Pharaoh respond to this kindness of God in trying to get his attention for repentance? Pharaoh becomes a deal maker. And he says to Moses, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people and I'll let you go to uh, offer sacrifice to the Lord. Do you ever make deals with God? Oh God, if you will just stop this, I will. And then you fill in the blank with whatever you think would be a great enough enticement to make God do what you want. But Moses was very wise here. He said, name the time that you want me to take the frogs away. Because he didn't want this to just be coincidental or for Pharaoh to be able to claim that. And so notice the mercy. He wasn't going to kill the ones in the Nile. God created frogs for some purpose, and he wasn't going to make them extinct here. So Pharaoh says tomorrow, and then here is Moses who intercedes for Pharaoh's request. And in mercy, the Lord answered Pharaoh's request, and the frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and the fields. But God just didn't poof them disappearing into the air. He let natural progress, let them uh, fade away, and they began to really deteriorate. And once again, the land was full of stench. Do you get the idea that apart from God, things created can be unpleasant and have unpleasant aromas? The Nile smelled the decaying frog smelled. There's something else decaying here, and that is Pharaoh's heart, and it's starting to smell too. Pharaoh saw the relief, but what the text says in chapter 8, verse 15, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Does that happen to us in life? When God in his mercy brings relief, do we move away from him and respond to him by not being as dependent on him as before during the crisis and going our own way thinking, Phew, that's over, now I can just do what I want? But the rescuer still doesn't rest even when we behave that way. And Pharaoh's response here of refusing, we see he's rejecting the Lord's mercy, but the Lord is still going to show him what he is like. So we have plague three in chapter eight, verses 16 through 19. This is the third plague in the triplet, so it doesn't have anything about mourning. It doesn't have any warning. It's just the happening. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron to uh, stretch his staff over the dust of the ground. Now the previous two miracles had something to do with water, but here it's land, it's the earth. And God, the creator, made all the dust just turn into gnats. Now, some versions will say it was lice, some will say it's ticks, but whatever it was of the three, it would have been very annoying, and it got on humans and animals, and we see that this intensity is increasing in the plagues. Well, guess what? The magic guys don't do gnats. They don't do dust to gnats. And they respond to Pharaoh, because you know they're a little bit on the hot seat here because they couldn't mimic it. This is the finger of God. But I don't think they were trying to glorify the one true living God here. But I think they didn't want Moses and Aaron to get any credit for this. So they're going to shift it off to some other God out there in all of their many. And they were making a trivial thing of it. But only plague one and two could they mimic. So this plague was a miracle because the dust of the earth turned to gnats instantly. And the magic guys couldn't do that. And it was meaningful because the Egyptians worshipped the earth. 
It produced their crops and their agriculture. Set was the god of the desert. And this was also aimed at the priesthood of the Egyptians, who oversaw all the worship of these gods. They were known for these baths they took before they uh, conducted the worship ritual. And they were pristinely clean. And they couldn't get rid of the gnats. So it kind of messed up their worship ritual. And then this is merciful another opportunity for Pharaoh. God is showing that he is also the Lord of the earth. But it says in chapter 8, verse 19, that Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and it says he would not listen. Notice in these passages how often a hard heart and not listening are linked. If we're to have tender hearts toward God, we have to ask him to open our ears, our spiritual ears, to where we listen to him. And look at the extent of mercy here. God could have just blown all the Egyptians off the earth and taken his people out. But in his mercy, he is showing the Egyptians who the one true living God is. And he wanted to show them that he is omnipotent over all the false gods in Egypt. Now, the audience was not just the Egyptians. It's also the Hebrews. God is allowing them to see that God is sovereign over all these false gods. Because when they get ready to march out in the Exodus, God doesn't want them carrying any ideas about these idols from Egypt with them. God's waiting to rescue them is not because God was weak, and couldn't do it right now. But it's because he's waiting for the fullness of time to reveal his rescue. He is deepening the Hebrews' faith so that they can move forward in strength and become a nation. This is going to be the point when they become a nation. And he wants them to become a strong nation that can be a pattern for all the other cultures and all the other nations to see the grace and the glory of the one true living God. And so God is merciful to be speaking to the Egyptians through this process and to be speaking to the Hebrews. Even today, Jews today would look back on these events as being the greatest expression of God's love for them. So the first triplet is done, but there's more to do before the rescue. So plague four Exodus 8, 20 through 32. It's the first plague of this next triplet, so that means it has something about mourning and warning and then the happening. So God instructs Moses to rise up early, go confront Pharaoh when he goes out to his water worship, and he says, warn him, if he does not let the people go, that he will send swarms of flies. First two plagues were water-related. The third was from the dust of the earth. And this one is something from the air. God is showing Pharaoh the extent of his reign. He is over the water, the earth, and the air. They are all his. But this plague will have a distinct difference. It will not affect the land of Goshen where the Hebrews lived. God is going to deal differently with his redeemed people. And he's going to show that it is the God of Israel that is in authority, not only on his own people, but also over the Egyptians. Now, this plague and the next are merely announced by Moses and Aaron, but God brings about this plague. It doesn't require Aaron's staff. God is ramping up his I am-ness for the Egyptians to get a grasp of. So at his command, God's command, it says in the King James Version, grievous swarms of flies were in Pharaoh's house. They were in his servants' houses, and they were in all the houses of Egypt. And evidently, these were flies that could attach themselves to bodies and create swelling, and maybe particularly around the eye area. And when these flies laid eggs on plants, it killed the plants. So this was a a gruesome plague. Now, the miracle was that God called these flies to come in swarms, and they obeyed. Pharaoh doesn't obey, but the flies do. The Egyptians had a lot of things in the air that they worshipped, but God chose something very small and insignificant 
and made it very devastating to the Egyptians. God is powerful over what's big and what is small. And it was miraculous because there was not a single fly in the land of Goshen. Now keep in mind, in Goshen, there's shepherds and a whole lot of sheep. Are you kidding me? There's not one fly on a sheep there? No, there was not. Now part of what is miraculous in these plagues is that God used things in nature that he had created, but he increases the quantity of them, he multiplies them, and then the miracle is also in the timing. At his command, they come, they obey, they cease when he says cease. And this was meaningful because flies were thought to be a physical manifestation of one of their gods. And it could have been the god Geb, G-E-B, and it could have been another one that starts with a U, but it was too hard for me to pronounce, so just take my word for it. There were several uh, fly gods in the Egypt culture. And again, if you looked at the image in the, in the archaeology imagery of this, it would have an Egyptian look, but have the face of a fly. And it's merciful. Now, this time Pharaoh says, go sacrifice to your God here in the land. Pharaoh's saying, just go local. He's admitting that there's a God of the Hebrews, but not over him. He's setting the terms. This is not surrender. This is compromise. But Moses held fast. Todd would have been proud of him. He is sac- And the Egyptians thought that the animal sacrificing that the Hebrews did, they thought some of those animals were sacred, so that would make them very angry. And so Moses claims that the Egyptians would stone them if they did that. Moses insisted on a three-day journey into the wilderness, a triplet-day journey. But God wanted true worship, and he did want them moved out from the idol and false worship environment of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh promises under stress that he's going to let them go. Not far, and pray for me, please, but when that stress is relieved, he breaks his promise. Now, here's another mercy in these plagues. Here, God is merciful in that he's revealing his character that he keeps his promises. Those promises he made way back in Genesis, he is keeping. Pharaoh, who just made a very recent promise, is lying. He's not going to keep that promise. So God is allowing us to see something about his character of how he is a promise keeper. So Moses says the flies will leave tomorrow. Again, the timing is part of the miracle and the flies obeyed. But the response of Pharaoh again is to refuse not to receive. And it says in 832, Pharaoh hardened his heart. But the rescuer is still going to rescue. He is not going to rest. So plague five, chapter nine, one through seven. This is the middle plague of this triplet. So there's the warning and then the happening. And the warning was, let my people go or there'll be a terrible disease that comes on the livestock in the field. It included horses, donkeys, camels, cattle, sheep, goats. But no animal of the Israelites will die. Now it's important here just to note it does include that word field because later on next week when you look at another plague you'll see there were some animals around. But these are all the things that are out in the field. And so the next day God did that. And so the miracle was that God set the time. He did it. It occurred. It did not touch Israel. And when God did this, it affected really their wealth, their economy, because the way someone was wealthy was in how much livestock they had. And it also affected their uh, military power, because they used those horses in their military uh, ventures. And it's meaningful, because the Egyptians worshipped bulls and cows, and they made huge images of them. I mean much larger than life images of them, enormous ones. And this particular pharaoh, if you look back at archaeology, at castings of him, you actually find uh, castings of him where he's kissing cows, he's bowing down before cows, and there's even a really gross one where he is sucking on their udders for nourishment. What can I say? Sin makes you stupid. Mark it down. 
The flies were little, but the livestock was big. God is revealing more and more about himself. And again, this was merciful. You know what? Pharaoh, who lies, didn't believe God, so he actually sent someone to go check and be sure that nothing had happened to the animals of the Israelites. But God was merciful to show Pharaoh and to show his people that he, could, he can protect those that he rescues and redeems. And that encourages us. He can protect us. But once again, Pharaoh's heart was unyielding. He wouldn't let the people go. And chapter 9, verse 7, it says that Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. And this time, there's not even any fake acquiescence. It's just straight out, no. Now notice in these plagues, plagues 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. With each of those, it says clearly in the text, either that Pharaoh hardened his heart, or the subject of the verb to harden there is that his heart remained hard. And in none of these five does it say God hardened his heart. Now next week you're going to see a different picture. But what does this show us about God? The patience that he had. And that he was truly revealing himself to Pharaoh. He was truly giving Pharaoh and the Egyptians a chance. And he was truly teaching the Israelites. But he is that kind of patient with us too. He is not short-fused. And actually here in this passage, we are seeing a visual of Romans 1. God will allow a man to reject him, but not without revealing his character to him in multiple ways over multiple times. So we've covered plagues 1 through 5. So I'll leave you hanging here. You have to come back next week to finish out the miraculous, meaningful, merciful action of God to rescue, redeem, and reveal himself to his people, to us, and even to his enemies. So in conclusion, I just want to point out some things to you. One is, these plagues were not a myth. They're not a virtual game. They were reality. God has shown to the whole world and down through the generations that he can overcome the forces and the nature of things in, world, in the world so that his people can be free to worship him. But God's story of revelation is not over. He is still at work revealing himself to our present wor- world, and he is still at work revealing himself to you. The rescuer does not rest as long as those, there are those to rescue. Now, the rescuer's greatest rescue is salvation through Jesus Christ. When you recognize his call to you and you respond to him by receiving his offer of rescue and you receive the meaningful work he does in your life to confront what you love more than him and you receive his mercy even when you're distant from him, when you're oppressed by sin, you turn to him. When you ask his forgiveness and help, he responds to you. What we see God do in the heart and life of someone who comes to Christ far exceeds the miracles of the plagues. Blood and frogs and lice and flies and cattle disease are nothing compared to the miracle of a transformed, forgiven heart in Christ. And he continues that rescue work as he continues to rescue you from what hinders you from growing in him. And God is still adding stories to his history of rescue, redemption, and revelation. And you can take note of that around here by picking up some of those rocks that are out in our landscaping and reading what people wrote on them about how God has rescued them. Now, you may feel dizzy tonight from my use of triplets, and it was just a gimmick to get your attention. But here's the good news for you. In the end, the only triplet you need is the Trinity. Loving, compassionate Father, obedient, willing to suffer, servant, son, who will come back as king, indwelling spirit who seals your rescue and redemption for all of eternity, and who guides you, comforts you, and instructs you 
until you are with the Trinity forever. This three in one will rescue you from the separation of sin and the penalty of sin. And he will continue that rescue to help you die to yourself, Trinity, me, myself, and mine. The rescuer never rests, but we can rest in his rescue. I just wanted to share with you some verses that sometimes I just think of one of these when I wake up in the morning because it reminds me that he doesn't rest in his rescue of me. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's going to completion. And then Psalms 121, verses 3 and 4, we memorize this as a family. It says that God never slumbers nor sleeps. And one of the boys added the phrase, he don't take no naps either because he hated naps. And so in our family, we still quote this verse this way. But you can trust in his rescue because he doesn't slumber or sleep. John 5, 17, where Jesus is speaking and he says, my father is always working and so am I. So any given day, you can think about the father is working and so is his son, Jesus. And then Ephesians 2.10, it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And the idea of that word workmanship is of an artist creating a masterpiece. And so when we think about the rescuer never resting, that he is like an artist creating in us his masterpiece. Does that not encourage you Does that not give you worthiness and value as you think about the rescuer who will never rest until you are with him in eternity? I want you tonight to just, uh, I'm going to read through some questions and just ask you to consider them. We're going to listen to a song at the end and maybe you just think about them as we're listening to that. But first of all, I want you to think about what idols need to be made powerless in your life by the rescuer? What are things that you have let take prominence ahead of him? And then secondly, do you have the courage to ask the rescuer, search me, know me, show me anything that is offensive in me? I want to challenge you to do that this week, to have the courage to ask the rescuer since you've seen what his character is like to ask him to do that in your life. And then to consider your heart. Which triplet describes how you respond to God? Reject, rebel, resist, or receive, repent, run to? And then do you see yourself in some of Pharaoh's responses? You ignore God, you try being a deal maker, you want compromise on God's standards and commands, Do you break promises to God? Do you turn your back on him? Do you not listen to him? And then this question, will you join the rescuer in his work to reveal himself to the unrescued? Uh, In July, mid-2015, the statistics show that on the planet, there are 7.25 billion people Of that 7.25 billion people, 2.3 billion would self-identify themselves as Christians. That leaves 5 billion. And we have the opportunity to be available to the rescuer to help him with those 5 billion. I started out by talking about how I felt in the piano practice room. That room was so small, it just had a piano and a bench. And I could sense that there was life beyond that practice room and I wanted to be rescued. It's not a perfect analogy, but we who know the rescuer need to be living as rescued people so that others around us can sense that there's a difference of life there and that they would want to know how can I be rescued too. I want us to close by reflecting on those things and just listening to the song that I hope will just impress upon your heart and mind as you leave to go to your groups and as you leave to go home tonight how much the rescuer loves you.
tonight uh, is that you will leave here loving the rescuer even more and that you will leave here focused more on who he is as the rescuer than on all the Egypt that surrounds you in your life. And my prayer for you is that you run to the rescuer and that you realize that he is running after you and that his love for you will never end. Let me pray. Father, we are in awe of who you are as we look at this passage. And we are in awe at what you would go to and the patience to reveal who you are, your love, your power, your desire for your creation and created to be rescued and back in restoration with you. I pray you'll bless the time in the groups tonight, that each group will be able to encourage one another to understand more and grasp more about you. And Father, I just pray that you will fill our minds with times back in our past history where we can look back and see that you rescued us and that you're still in the process of rescuing us as you sanctify us. We just love you and pray in your name. Amen.